0: entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley.
1: Hi everyone, it's Nick here and welcome to Scale Up Your Business for this week. So today on the show, I am delighted to have David Cote. Now David Cote, you may know who's David Cote, have I heard that name before? Well, you may not have, but he was previously the CEO of one of the largest companies in the world. So the industrial giant Honeywell, so you may have heard of that name. They 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 were basically worth 120 billion under David's leadership. In fact, he took the business from 20 billion to 120 billion. <laughs> delivering returns of 800% and beating the S&P in the US by nearly two and a half times. So it's not very often that we have a CEO of a global corporate come on to scale up your business, but that is exactly who we have on the show today. Now, David is currently the executive chairman of Vertif Holdings, which is a global data center products and service provider. But we're going to get into his his leadership really when he was at the helm of Honeywell. And we're also going to talk about his book. His new book coming out is called Winning Now, Winning Later, how companies can win in the short term while investing in the long term. So that's going to be out this month and we'll make sure that we have some details in the show notes for you if you'd like to have a look at that. Now, what's really cool about the conversation today, and there's a number of different things, is we are going to talk about short-terminism and kind of what happens in the impact of that in terms of business. And I know lots of CEOs out there, particularly when they have shareholders, are always looking at kind of how they can show short-term performance. But what if I pose this question to you? What happens if that short-term decision-making was going to really stump your long-term growth? And that's where we want to play today with David, because he... You know, very humble guy. You know, it doesn't really kind of go on the fact that he was running one of the world's largest companies, but he had to manage massive amounts of complexity, massive amounts of challenge, stress, by having to sort of keep the keep the rudder focused on where the ship could go longer term to be able to make you know the the massive results that he did in terms of that value creation. So we're going to get into that today. As I said, his book is a bit of a playbook on this sort of stuff, and I love this because. I think you've got to caution this idea of of just thinking about what you can do every single month or every single kind of financial year. Yes, it's important and shareholders are going to want to see that. But if you can sell the longer term vision, something that we speak about a lot on this show, then that is going to be compelling, particularly if you think of the short term things as milestones to get there. So the other thing, though, which was absolutely fascinating, sometimes on scale up your business, you get people come on and you know that. From the outset, it's going to be an interesting conversation just because of what they've done. And David's, you know, got a huge amount of experience leading these, these things and leadership of business. But not only that, he used to work for General Electric. Now, GE, um, one of the biggest companies in the world, one of the most um, publicized companies in the world, certainly 20, 30 years ago. And that's because of one main reason. The CEO of that company was a guy called Jack Welch. Now, I've read most of Jack's books. In fact, when I was getting into the kind of world of corporate and business, a couple of his books, one of them called Winning, was one of the playbooks for me because he's considered, if not the greatest CEO of the last century, certainly in the top five, and a hugely powerful, charismatic um, leader, but also had some quite polarizing views in terms of how we thought about managing people and performance. Now, the cool thing about this today, right, is David used to report directly into Jack. So we get into today, what's it like to to work for one of the world's greatest CEOs? And again, I said to you, David's humble, right? But obviously what he went on and did with Honeywell makes him in that category and then some. So anyway, that's the show for today. Um, As I said, if you always like what we're doing here, please subscribe to Scale Up Your Business on Apple Podcasts. We can go to Spotify and if you'd like to join our community, it's the Scale Up Your Business community on Facebook. Anyway, hope you love the show. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business, David Coates. Hi, everybody. It's Nick here, and welcome to another episode of Scale Up Your Business. I am delighted to have with me today David Coates, who is the executive chairman of Vertive Holdings and has previously been the CEO of industrial giant Honeywell. When he was there, he grew the company from around $20 billion to nearly $120 billion, delivering returns of 800% and beating the S&P by nearly two and a half times. He's not doing that anymore. But we're going to go back and talk about that story in a minute. But he is the author of a book, which is coming out very shortly, called Winning Now, Winning Later, How Companies Can Win in the Short Term While Investing in the Long Term. So welcome to Scale Up Your Business, David. Oh, it's fun to be here, Nick. Nice to meet you. That's okay. I don't normally do long intros. I normally do them at the very beginning. But you know what? I thought it was such a nice intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> People get very embarrassed. I'm going to kick off with a bit of a different question. So one of my um, favorite um, books was written by a guy called Jack Welch many years ago. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, you know what? When I, was, when I had my corporate career, I was kind of like, you know, l- sort of learning a lot of his theories and philosophies and trying to apply some of the ones I thought made sense. But I was looking at kind of one of the things in your profile, David, and it said, and whether this is true or not, this is what I was told back in 1985, your handling of an interaction with CEO Jack Welch when you were working at General Electric, the catalyst for your um, advancement of your career at GE. Now, <laughs> <laughs> yes. saying I didn't write that? But I thought that was interesting. So, just tell us about that if that's true, and, and obviously what it was like working for uh, GE and um, Jack back in the day.
0: Well, uh, the story is true, and it's uh, he's actually got a that vignette in his book, and while he he has like a page devoted to it in his book, because you might imagine it had a much bigger impact on my life than uh, just that one page, but I was, uh, uh, and it's maybe a longer story than you want, but I was, I don't know, 34 years old, I guess. And um, there were two separate things going on. Uh, One, I was asked by my uh, finance peers to be the guy who would send out the request for strategic plan templates. So this pile of templates would go out and everybody would have to fill them in. Then we'd uh, gather it all up. And the international folks and the business development folks would piggyback on my request. So I would, it was my job to send out like 50 pages of fill in these templates by such and such a date. So I was, uh, before I did it, and I'd never done it before, but before I did it the first time I was with uh, my boss and his staff. And I said, geez, you know, um, I don't think we ought to do this. We, well, we ought not to send it out because it's a lot of work for everybody and we don't really do anything with it. So what, why do this? This is, seems to be the sort of thing that Jack is talking about, that it's just bureaucracy and we shouldn't do it. I was roundly voted down by my boss and his entire staff and told to do it. So I said, okay, so I sent it out. So fast forward a couple of months and, um, my buddy is gone, so I have to take his place in doing Jack Welch's board pitch. So I'm running around kind of doing stuff, trying to get pages together. And all of a sudden, my uh, secretary calls and says, uh, Jack Welch is trying to reach you. So, oh, okay. So I thought, all right, he must want to understand the status of his board pitch. Let me get myself mentally prepared. So I call and he picks up the phone. And I remember this is like 1985 or so. And he says, Dave, Is it true we asked medical systems for what the ROI will be in the ultrasound business in 1989? Now, I'm standing there listening uh, into the phone thinking, what the hell? Where where is this coming from? What's this got to do with the pitch? And I mean, it's like totally out of left field. And it finally dawns on me, oh, wait a minute. That was probably part of that strategic plan kind of thing. So I hesitated for a few seconds, then said, uh, "Yes, I think we may." As part of the strategic plan request, he literally came through the phone at me and just started swearing on the phone and telling me to get that request and get my ass up to his office right away. Says, "Oh, okay." So I go rang back to my office, bring it in, and give it to his secretary. Who says, "Okay, you can go now, Dave." And I said, "I don't know. I think he wants to see me." And, And I'd had. Never had a one-on-one interaction with him. So she does this, suits yourself. She walks in. All of a sudden I hear, Dave, Dave, get in here. So I go in and he's sitting there with the HR leader who's also named Jack. And he's just rapidly flipping through these pages, just pissing himself off as he as he does it. And then he starts just cursing at me and yelling at me and saying, "What? why are you doing this? Why would you do such a stupid thing? And... I'm just standing there and I'm explaining, well, this is the financial expression of the strategic plan. It's one of the things that we need to do to understand if all the strategic plans make uh, sense for the company. This goes on for about <clears throat> 15 minutes with him just yelling and cursing at me. And then he finally turns to the HR leader, Jack, and says, Jack, you used to run a business, Jesco. Did you ever fill out these pages? And uh, he, he said, no, Jack, we never had to do this. And I looked over at him, and uh, I don't know why, sometimes my mouth gets ahead of me. And I just said, well, actually, you did. And he said, Dave, he he starts yelling at me. He says, Dave, I ran that business. I should know whether we did it or not. Well, uh, it's sitting in my file drawer in my office. If you want to see it, I can go get it for you. And (laughs) I don't know why I did that, but I was getting a little little annoyed. And I felt like there was like, it was almost like I was looking down on myself, thinking, I can't believe this. I didn't even want to do this thing. And now I'm stuck in the middle of defending it. So I walk out of his uh, office, go back to mine. I get a call from the CFO later saying, cause he'd been out and said, can we stop it? And I said, no, uh, if we do, it's coming in tomorrow. It'll, it'll piss people off even more if we make them do all the work and then not send it in. So he said, all right. So you fast forward a couple of months. And oh, by the way, I called my wife at the time to say, I think I've been fired I said, I'm not sure how this works, but he is very angry and uh, I think I'm going to be fired. So uh, we need to start thinking about what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? I'm sorry, etc. So fast forward two more months and I'm I was one of the two finance guys. I was the junior finance guy on the RCA acquisition. <clears throat> so I'm invited along with others to the RCA acquisition party. So. I walk in to the party with my buddy. And as I do, I hear this, Dave, Dave, get over here. And I think, son of a gun, he's going to fire me at a party. I can't believe it. I've heard all the stories about what he's like. He's going to fire me at a party. I just can't believe this. So I go walking over. My buddy goes with me, um, you know, and we're kind of trying to make the best of it. And I get over there and Jack looks at me and he's, got a big grin on his face. And he says, you know, I was never so pissed at anybody since I've been in plastics. And again, you know, my mouth kind of gets me and I looked over at him and I said, well, I really appreciated you sharing it with me. Well, he thought that was pretty funny. So he started laughing and we start talking. And then my buddy tells him, you know, Jack, Dave never wanted to send out that request in the first place he actually recommended to our boss and to the whole staff that we not send it out. And we all voted him down. And I always remember Jack like made a, a fist of his hand and took it into his side and said, so you just took the knife for those guys. And I looked at him and said, well, no, not really. I mean, you just don't throw in your friends on something like that. And it's not like it was anything illegal or anything. And he just kept like shaking his head and going, wow, wow, oh man, you know, wow, that's, that's something. And I didn't think anything of it. And, you know, like conversations do, it kind of dwindled off. So my buddy and I uh, walked off and I looked over at my buddy and said, man, that was really nice of you to do. I really appreciate it. And my buddy, being a good guy, said, well, just so you know, and we're clear, if he hadn't been in a good mood, I wouldn't have said anything. <laughs> so, a lot yeah. in this
1: story, Dave. I mean, there's a lot in the, I mean, I love, I, I always like kind of, I always like to sort of ask an interesting question you're not expecting. So there's well, a lot what ended up story. happening
0: is the <laughs> CFO actually, as the party was winding down a couple hours later, pulled me aside and said, Dave, I'd like to talk to you. I said, okay. So we went and sat outside by a fountain and he said, you have no idea how much good you did yourself with how you handle this whole thing. And I said, well, Dennis, I am hard pressed to understand how, because it sure doesn't feel that way. And he said, no, Uh, with the way you handled yourself in his office, he said he has made vice presidents cry with the way he treated you and you never reacted. You were just kind of calm throughout and just kind of handled the questions and had an answer for things, but didn't try making excuses. And then when he found out tonight, that you hadn't thrown in your friends, and despite the risk to you, said you have no idea how much good you did for yourself. So it was like, I don't know, three weeks later, it used to be that levels were a big thing in big companies. So if you were going for promotions, if you got a one level jump, you were doing well. If you got a two level jump, it meant you were on fire. You were the kind of person that uh, was gonna just keep accelerating. All of a sudden, he had me interviewing for jobs that were three and four levels above where I was, which interestingly causes interesting dynamics because some people immediately become very supportive of you and a bunch of others become immediately, who the hell is this guy and who does he think he is? So you end up with a bunch of different dynamics. But it did work as a career accelerator, even though for four months it just felt miserable. (laughs) At the end of the day, it actually worked out pretty well.
1: Oh, it's a great story, though. I, you know, there's, there's a whole thing, you know, the whole, um, what's the concept, a, a career limiting move.
0: You yeah, CLMs before. we used to call them.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you <laughs> kind of sit on that sort of precipice and you think, actually, did I just do one of those? Or And obviously, sometimes you've got to take a risk anyway in life, don't you, in business and in life. And obviously, you stood for what you believed in, you stood for your values. and. You know, that's the outcome of it. Wow. Was that the the one thing you think accelerated your career more than anything else?
0: In uh, GE, that was, I'd say at that point in time, it definitely was. There's uh, no no doubt, because it's like I say with uh, to anybody who's coming up, is I'll say, look, advancement requires two things, performance and visibility. So you have to do a great job, because if you're not doing a great job, it doesn't matter. And somebody needs to see it. It needs to be noticeable. So it gave me, it didn't do much on the performance side. I had to do something separate for that. But it gave me an incredible amount of visibility so that people finally started noticing everything I had been doing. And you put those two together and it works pretty effectively. Yeah, wow. Excellent. Well, as I said,
1: welcome to the show. Great intro. <laughs> let's uh, let's let's get into um, kind of what you're doing now, a bit, David. If that's okay. So, as we said beforehand, um, I suppose big claim to fame has been, you know, running Honeywell as the chief exec. What are you doing these days?
0: Uh, well, two things. One is the book, which uh, I spent a bunch of time writing, and is a heck of a lot more painful process than I ever would have thought. But I'm really pleased. It's killer, isn't it? Uh, it really is. It's a lot more work than people would ever think. More work than I ever expected. And I, I expected it to be a lot. Uh, the second one is um, I did something called a SPAC, which is creating a, basically a New York Stock Exchange listed public company that just has cash and you uh, find a business to merge with. We de-SPAC, if you will, uh, about three months ago and acquired a company called Vertiv. Uh, Vertive Holdings, which makes yep. uh, data center products. Think of it as uh, the thermal management, the big air conditioning units, the uninterrupted power supply to make sure that there's consistent, reliable power into a facility, the server racks, that all the servers go in in a, a data center. And I was just, up, you know, the way I ran Honeywell was I always wanted a great position in a good industry. And I loved this industry because uh, data keeps growing and it's got to get stored somewhere and development of the edge. And that's think of it as uh, you can't send everything to a data center in Northern Finland because of the latency problem. You need to have good edge development for a lot of applications. So I liked it. I thought it was a great industry and our position was terrific. And I, I couldn't be more excited about what we're gonna do there. Uh, uh, I see great returns ahead for us. And so was writing, um,
1: just to jump into the point you made about the book, so was writing the book harder than what you did at Honeywell?
0: Uh, Wow, interesting question. I guess it depends on the point in time. Because during the recession, that was a lot harder. There you go. Uh, When things were kind of running, you know, the economy's doing fine and everything's moving, you're just focused on how are you going to grow faster than you are? Then writing the book was definitely tougher. That required a lot focus,
1: discipline, resilience. I'm sure there's similar qualities across. Oh it. yeah. Well, Let's get gotta, into it.
0: More than once, I thought to myself, uh, "God, this would be a great project to just quit." And then I would find myself saying, "You know, well, the problem is uh, I'm a finisher. No matter what it is, whether it's a book I don't like." a project at work, the food that's in front of me, unfortunately, I finish it. And I thought I, it will bug me for the rest of my life if I don't finish this darn book. So I worked it very hard and we finally got it done.
1: Well, let's get into it, let's get into it. So today, I mean, obviously long intro, but I do like people to get to know all the guests that come on here. So your book, Winning Now, Winning Later, how companies can win in the short term while investing in the long term. Um, what an amazingly appropriate title of a book for right now, because we're recording this kind of in the midst of COVID 19 and quarantine and all these different pieces. And on a daily basis, I've got people getting in touch with me talking about the short term, you know, cash positions, um, how can I, you know, have a longer runway so my business can remain afloat? Others are talking about, you know, how can I make the most of this right now? So from a kind of, you know, building audience, not necessarily selling, but helping people and and having a reputation of someone who stood up. So let's get into the book. So what, you know, take take me through the principles or the key things that underpin, I suppose,
0: why you did it and what the message is you're trying to get across. I guess there's uh, two points I'd like to make. Uh, The first one is all the discussion that uh, you see out there about short-termism, is one of the things that I found a little irritating and a little frustrating because all the conversation seems to revolve around you are either short-term or long-term. And you got to pick one. They're mutually exclusive. And I always thought that was wrong. And that gets me to the second point. Here's why. Is one of the ways that, uh, one of the principles that I used to run Honeywell was that success is about accomplishing two seemingly conflicting things at the same time and if you look around you'll see them everywhere but as examples do you want low inventory or do you want great customer delivery do you want uh high margins and prices or do you want high volumes do you want uh low functional costs like finance it hr etc or do you want a uh, great internal service? Do you want uh, people closest to the action empowered so they can make quick decisions? Or do you want to have good control so nothing bad happens? In every case, success means finding out a way to accomplish both at the same time. And the same is true of short-term and long-term. It's a specious argument, in my view, to say that you have to pick one or the other. What you're trying to do is figure out, okay, how do I do enough in the short term so that my boss, my investors, uh, whomever it is that I have to please, looks at it and says, okay, that's good. But at the same time, I need to be doing the seed planting. So whether it's next year, three years from now, 10 years from now, I continue to perform. And I used to get this question all the time from investors after I'd been there in like 10 to 12 years. And they'd say, why are you doing so well now and none of your peers are? And I would say, well, it has less to do with what I'm doing today than what I did three and four years ago. Because we were doing all the seed planting that we'd need to in order to perform. And if you take a look at my successor, he's doing the same thing. And it's one of the reasons that Honeywell continues to do well. Okay. So where did you
1: first, I mean, that, because a lot of people kind of, they get in their heads, right? And I, I see this all the time with the, I suppose, the, the difficult conversations that sometimes sit between a CEO and the board or a CEO and investors or founders and investors, and they're pushed by people who aren't in the business, but, you know, want to return to, you know, to, for something to happen short term. How, how did you learn to push that back and to learn that kind of, I suppose, strategy, if you want to call it, around the longer term view, the longer term vision?
0: Well, uh, the first part of that is you got to be prepared to take some grief.
1: (laughs) I'm learning that from your first the first question. You've you've got a high resilience tolerance there.
0: You didn't
1: didn't punch (laughs) Jack in the face or anything. You kind of (laughs) just rolled with it.
0: (laughs) Well, you got to. If you're uh, sensitive to criticism, it's probably uh, not a great position to be in. You don't want to be immune to it, but you want to be able to make sure that you're. Truly considering what's being said and is it valid given what you're trying to get done? And I was in a situation when I first got to Honeywell where I couldn't trust my board and I couldn't trust my staff either, so I had to be extremely careful how I talked about things or uh, about what I did. And yeah, I did in the beginning uh, take a significant financial hit, and we had to, I mean, there was just so much bad, let's say, aggressive, unhealthy bookkeeping that had been going on, unrecognized environmental liabilities, unrecognized asbestos liabilities, uh, bad business practices like distributor loading at the end of the quarter, special deals cut with suppliers and customers so you could book one-time income. And I looked at that and said, okay, all this stuff has to be purged all of it has to go. So we got to fix all of this stuff first, which meant, yeah, I did take a pretty big uh, financial hit in the beginning, uh, a couple of billion dollars actually, just to finally recognize all this. And interestingly, uh, to give you a sense, when I said I couldn't trust my board, I mentioned it. Uh, I told my board about what I had found and the director pulled me aside afterwards and said, uh, all that bookkeeping stuff. We never want to hear about that again. That's your problem to deal with. So don't bring it up at the board. (laughs) Okay. Wow. So I can't, well, I also, as CEO, I was not allowed to see the books for the first four and a half months. I was the CEO. So even when I, so the chairman had responsibility for the books. It was my job to learn the company, and the businesses. and That's what I was directed by the board to do. So, if I just asked the finance guy, uh, so how's the quarter going? They would look at me and say, I'm sorry, Dave, but I've been instructed not to answer those questions from you.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm still I'm a bit astounded here. I mean, only because I'm sure there's there's a point in your whole kind of, you're doing this because there's some good incentive plans in place as well. You need to grow the business, you know, obviously increase the well, value.
0: I figured I I was just going to trust everybody and say, okay, well, I made my decision to come here. I'm not going to rail against this. Uh, Instead, I will focus on learning the company and four and a half months from now, I'll become chairman and can look at the books all I want. So I said, okay, I'm not going to make a big deal out of four and a half months. Well, at the end of four and a half months, when I actually got to see what was going on, I was like, what the hell? You got to be kidding me. We've been making this up and, I went back and one of my big things is looking at uh, what I call free cash flow conversion. And it's just net income or excuse me, free cash flow, uh, real free cash flow after tax divided by net income to get a sense for how much net income is real. And over a decade, that ratio for us had been 69 percent, which meant for every dollar of income, we only had 69 cents of cash. So, 31% of all income was coming from, let's say, other stuff. Man, that is not a great position to be in. No. Wow. Okay. So, so you had to, I mean, this is, uh, there's lots of questions I could
1: get into here about kind of where you start <laughs> with that. It was quite a mess, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, how long were you there? How long were you the CEO of Honeywell? I was the CEO uh, for 15 years and then chairman for another year. Right. And how long did it take you to get it back, you know, to deal with all this initial mess? And to get it to a position where you thought, you know what, we are now stable first, obviously, and then in a position of growth.
0: Yeah, I'd say uh, the first two years were the ones that were the, uh, the toughest. Because uh, 2002, I had the imbroglio that I was just telling you about when it came to the uh, financing and stuff, and had to take or, or the finance issues take a big write off. Uh, 2003, because of some of the accounting that had been done and we had to live with on when it came to pensions you saw a decline in income so 2002 and three were the real problems then 2004 uh, things finally started working and coming together and those principles that i'd put in place uh, started to pay off and that's why i say you may need to take a hit up front for a short period of time so this was a 22 billion dollar company And we took our hit for, say, a year and a half of reporting. And then uh, we went into the next phase, which is starting to show good short-term results, but starting to do the seed planting for the future. So think of it this way. Uh, If we could have grown earnings 14%, I would only grow it like 10% and take the other four points and reinvest it in the business. And figure out a way whether it was R and D, globalization, process work, all those things that I knew were going to be good seed planting for the future. And I used to take a lot of grief from investors at the time, where they'd say, "Geez, with the kind of sales growth you're having, uh, because the economy had started coming back, why isn't there more margin expansion, margin rate expansion?" And I'd explain, "Well, I'm filling the pipeline, whether it's." geographic, uh, new products, new services, process work. I've got to fill the pipeline. And they'd kind of shake their heads like uh, restructuring was another one. It's a, a lot of restructuring we need to do. And they just kind of shake their heads like, man, what an idiot this guy is. The, a lot of the sell side guys. But over time, when they started to see it pay, uh, because our results started exceeding uh, everyone else's, well, that put us in a much better spot. Yeah, okay. Because the question
1: I've got here is, I mean, there is a skill here in terms of focusing on the short and the long term. You know, it's not just a tactical thing. You know, that you made a, a very eloquent point about how you did one one thing, but what's the mindset like around this? Because you've got to be able to, you know, it's the wood for the trees a little bit here, isn't it? There's a bit of being able to jump close and be focused yeah. on what you get result, but also have some vision of how this is going to build together towards what you're trying to create. So how do you do those two
0: things? Well, uh, you just touched on one of my favorite words and that's mindset. And, uh, I've always said, no matter what it is you're trying to get done, that is the fundamental thing that has to change. And in my career, I once, uh, one of the other accelerants in GE is I started something called a quick response. I was in the appliance business and they wanted us to reduce inventory because the company uh, needed cash. And I was put in charge of it. <clears throat> and we took a very different approach because uh, even though I knew nothing about inventory, I said, geez, one of the things I want to do here is if I'm going to fail, like every other inventory reduction effort in the history, I'm going to fail differently. I'm not going to just do the same thing everybody else did. So we developed a different approach that said, okay, we're going to. Uh, reduce inventory, and we're going to improve customer delivery at the same time. And we're going to do it by reducing cycle time, the time that it actually takes to get an order and push it through the system. We were fabulously successful. We cut inventory from like a billion to 500 million. Uh, Delivery went from like low 80s to mid 90s. And I was asked then to go around and give a lot of presentations. And invariably, Somebody in the audience, you know, being all a bunch of got to get something done results oriented folks, would say, "All right, Dave, what's the number one thing you did to make this happen?" And I would always say, the first thing you have to do, the biggest thing you have to do, is capture the mindset. You need to change the mindset. And people would kind of nod their heads sagely in the audience, and then about two minutes later, someone would raise their hand and say, "You know that, that's very helpful, but what was the number one thing you did in order to make this work? (laughs) Because they all want to hear, okay, you use some Japanese term and go do this or uh, just put somebody in charge of it. And say, no, it's a, it's a cultural headset that has to change. The same is true here. So if as a leader, you don't truly believe it and think that way, and if you don't start to encourage that kind of thinking in your own folks, then it's not going to happen because <clears throat> human beings love knowing what's the one thing. Just tell me the one thing I got to do. I need to lose weight. Do I just stop carbohydrates? Uh, do I just eat less calories? I mean, tell, tell me what to do. They just want that one thing. And I always kind of joked at the movie City Slickers, if you remember Jack Palance and Billy Crystal in that. I do. And, Yeah, and he kind of reinforced it. You know, you tell him, Billy Crystal, you just got to know what that one thing is. Figure out that one thing in life. So we all want that. But it's not true. It's just not the way the world works. So you figure out how to do that. You got to, first of all, convince yourself that it's real and it's possible. Then in any strategic planning session you have, a kind of uh, operations uh, discussion, you have that conversation with people to make sure that they're thinking that way, and that no matter what it is they're dealing with as a short-term issue, you're thinking about the long term. So I'll give you an example: is financial yeah, accounting, which I was desperate to fix, and said, "We we can't keep making our numbers via accounting." Well, I can't tell you in the beginning how many calls I got from someone saying, "You know, uh, I'm not going to make the quarter. I gotta." If I can't load distributors, or if you won't let me take a one time payment from a supplier in exchange for a long term contract so that I can book that as income, if you won't let me do that, then I'm not going to make the quarter. Okay, so now you're kind of stuck with, Ooh, all right, this is going to hurt me in the short term. But it's really the wrong decision to make for the long term and trying to establish the mindset I want. And anybody who was there would tell you that I always told them the same thing no. I will not allow you to do that. You have to either spend less or sell more legitimately. And that's the only way I'm going to accept it. I, I never once agreed to let somebody do it. Now, we always made it largely because whatever I committed to Wall Street, uh, I had a plan for something much better than that because I, I didn't want to miss. So I didn't give everything I, I had. Uh, but over time, that convinced people that, okay, this guy's serious. I, I damn well better figure out a way to make my commitments, doing it the old-fashioned way, selling more legitimately or spending less legitimately, or he's not going to let me. And then you, it's a way of starting to get the, the thinking. But you've got to believe it yourself. If you don't believe it yourself, it ain't going to happen.
1: And have the conviction behind it, too, because, you know, I've, I've been, as I said beforehand, you know, my experience in the world of private equity, not all because, you know, there are some some people have different philosophies behind this, yeah. but there's a lot of short termism in that. There's a lot I mean, of kind of creative accounting that, you know, just just to kind of save cost in any one given year. So the, the AGM looks better <laughs> than it should. Um, but make, you know, uh, the,
0: EBITDA so the bank multiple looks good.
1: Well, it's funny. There's, I can't talk about specific investments, but I've been involved in a couple where you know, just to, what's that expression? Lipstick on the pig. <laughs> you heard that? Um, and like, you know, one year looks great, right? But then, literally two years later, all the foundations crack. You know, because of, you know uh, what yeah, I mean. It, and oh, I know of,
0: exactly what you mean. Yes,
1: it's a, it's a, that's why I mean. That's why I like the book and I like your philosophy on this because. It feels, and I'm sure, you know, I'll put a blanket comment out there. It feels somewhat rare, <laughs> you know, because particularly well, when one you... the
0: reasons I wrote the book, because you're exactly right is I feel uh, we've kind of fallen into this conundrum where we think it's one or the other that you're either short or long. And everybody wants to say, well, you know, look at uh, Amazon. They never have to, uh, make any money and everybody supports them and they got a great stock price. And, you know, I look at them and say, well, tell you what, if you grow sales 20, 25% a year for 20 years, yeah, it'd probably work for you too. So you got to think about this as uh, he's, you know, Bezos is doing a lot to grow the business and people believe that it's going to come. So he's delivering in the short term because they want to see sales growth. And that guy does a lot of seed planting. But well, if you're in a, a company We're or a business where the industry yeah. grows 3%, you can't say to investors, uh, we'll tell you what, uh, my earnings are actually going to go down 10% a year for the next three years. But in three years, it's going to be great. Because what do investors do? They say, great, see you in three years. <laughs> you know, Goodbye. Your boss will do the same thing if you're running a factory. I mean, They need numbers and that short-term performance is a validation of, are you on the right track? So the two were, I, in my view, inextricably tied, and we keep trying to separate them.
1: Yeah, and, and there's also, there's a piece around confidence that comes into this as well, because as you're right, there's a, the, where I found that particularly investors or boards will start to delve in in the short term is if they're not confident in the leadership of what's going on anyway. So they'll start to pick and micromanage. Yeah. And then obviously <clears throat> that becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy anyway, because then sure it as opposed, uh, yeah, I mean, because Bezos, you know, I remember back in the early two thousands when Amazon wasn't doing well. You know, there was a, there was a couple of times that you know this thing was growing and no one knew where it was going to go. Fast forward, you know, fifteen twenty years later, and now look at it. So there's a lot of a bit of you know he wasn't necessarily performing in the short term, but the long term stuff, the vision of that business, you know, for what it is today is amazing. So, okay, interesting. So let's go a little bit deeper here if we can. So. From a, how would you advise a leader? So, someone who's um, a chief exec, and I'm going to give you a very specific example. In fast growth tech businesses where the expectations are bigger, faster, shorter, long term, you know, so uncertain because of disruption, does it change? Does any of your thinking and philosophy, you know, would you advise them differently if they're in that environment or is it still the same? Is your principle still the same?
0: No, it's still the same. Uh, You you change the, say, what are the metrics that you're uh, considering? But it's still the same. If you say, geez, you know, uh, we need to invest 10 million a a quarter. And by doing that, here's where this product or service is going to be at any point in time. And um, here's where uh, our sales are going to be or the number of customers we're going to to have. I mean, you've got to deliver to that. And in effect, you're doing that as you've got your, your you're doing the two seemingly conflicting things because you've got your short term. OK, here's what I got to spend. Here's what I got to do. Um, but all of that short term stuff is consistent with where you're trying to get for the long term. And you can't tell them my view. You can't tell all these venture capital guys, look, I'm going to spend uh, 10 million dollars a quarter for three years. And then all of a sudden, everything is going to boom. Okay, maybe they'll believe you, but my guess is most often they're going to say, well, we'd like to see some customer validation as we we go along. Can you sign up five customers at the third quarter point to show that there's some interest in this? Can you show that um, you've got two customers signed up to this long-term contract if you can uh, deliver this thing? So- they tend to be very long-term focused. But I'd be shocked if they're not looking for some kind of short-term validation as you're going along that this is delivering what they expect it's going to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I see different things in terms of you got a lot of, well, the good ones. The good ones, particularly in that space, um, have a clear view of, of, you know, as you said, customer conversion. So they might be growing their audience base, even if the business is not profitable yet because they're obviously still investing in, the product service piece, but they've already got the market fit done, and so you're right. The validation is that where it falls down, and this is what I've seen a lot, is when someone turns up and their vision is, you know, I'm going to create a unicorn, and it's going to be the next Uber, it's going to be the next this. Mm-hmm. And they're so focused on the vision that they're not <laughs> uh, disciplined enough. Let's say with the um, here and now, with the day to day.
0: Yep, so, exactly. exactly. It, you got it. It's great to have a vision, but you know, it's like I say about. Uh, leadership i would say there's three important fundamentals to leadership the first is being able to mobilize a a large group of people and i'll say that's the most visible but it's really only five percent of the job the second one is to be able to have great judgment about where you're going and i'll say if you mobilize a large group but you spend 40 years wandering in the desert you're probably not a really good leader Then the third one is, okay, you've picked the direction you want to go. You've picked your vision. Can you now get everybody step-by-step moving in that direction so that you are making progress against that goal that you can actually see and have a sense for? That third one gets forgotten by a lot of leaders and is very consistent with what you were just talking about is they got a vision, they're going to go somewhere, but at what speed and what are the milestones or inch stones along the way to show that you've actually done something or that it's gonna work or you're gonna get there. They just don't pay any attention to, or they delegate it. And I I call that uh, delegation. Uh, You want delegation, not abdication. And too many (laughs) leaders just abdicate. They just kinda, I have great people. Uh, It's my job just to make strategic decisions and have the vision. And then everybody else makes it happen. Well, that's not a recipe for success. You've got to be able to do exactly what you said.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a whole thing about you've got to, you know, I, I call it showing up. You know, you've got to show up. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, there, a lot of, uh, I, I've seen it many a time. There's a piece of, you know, because a lot of the times if, if, if you don't show up, And that doesn't mean necessarily doing all the work for everybody, then the teams, your leadership team and and the management or whatever else that sits underneath your organization, drives the organization, aren't going to believe it. And if they haven't got the conviction behind, you know, what you're trying to drive and you've got that massive why, you know, being communicated through, then, you know, people aren't going to be inspired and motivated to make it happen anyway. Yeah. Yeah. there's a huge piece. I want to jump back one bit to what you said about mindset because I talk yeah. about mindset a lot on the podcast. What, what actually is mindset to you? And I don't mean just in business. I mean, personally. I mean, if you were going to define it, you know, yeah. how does it land?
0: <clears throat> well, that's an interesting question. Uh, how would I define mindset? For me, it's, it's a way of thinking about things. And uh, you have to be able to first of all believe it yourself you're not going to change how an organization thinks about it if you don't think about it that way and act that way but it's a way of thinking and it requires um, you have to change how you perceive things and how you think about it it starts with you (laughs) and using that quick response example uh, i was put in charge of inventory reduction that was my mandate. Not customer delivery, inventory reduction. So I pulled together a group of people to talk about, okay, what do we do? How how are we going to go do this? And it was a manufacturing guy who said more than once, you know, we've done a bunch of these where this always falls apart is customer availability, product delivery, that uh, we reduce inventory, but customer delivery gets worse. Salesforce complains. We have to build up the inventory again, and it just doesn't work. So he said, we got to measure both of these. we got to accomplish both of these. And I was resistant. When I first heard it, it, my mindset was not there. And I kept thinking, this is ridiculous, you know, this old guy telling me this stuff when inventory is what it, we got to be doing. And I would say it took me a couple of weeks before I finally understood the wisdom of what he was saying. And I had to internalize that myself. And once I'd gotten through that internalization process, then I started seeing it everywhere. And it wasn't just product delivery and inventory. It was controls versus empowerment. It was price versus volume. It was everywhere, speed versus effectiveness. Do you want it right or do you want it fast? yes, I want it right and fast. And I started seeing it everywhere. And once that happened, you know, once I had that epiphany, if you will, then it was very easy for me to do. And like I said, if you don't change yourself, then you're not going to change your organization. And some people are going to get it, jump right on it. Others won't. Some are just going to be acquiescence. Yeah, that's what you want. You know, I'll, I'll do it. But over time, you'll get there. It doesn't happen overnight, but it starts with the leader.
1: did you have to make in terms of particularly the Honeywell situation, did you have to make much of a transition of the people when you went there as a leader? was there a obviously there's a mindset shift of you coming in and introducing a new way of thinking, but did you find well,
0: that that there was a lot of
1: transition of the people as well?
0: Yes, <clears throat> I didn't do it wholesale, and I used to get this uh, complaint from uh, investors who'd say, because I was not considered a great leader uh, when I got there. I was viewed as, uh, didn't make it to the first tier in the GE succession race. You weren't even the first choice to run Honeywell. This company is in trouble. What hope does it have with somebody like you in charge? And that, they actually said that on CNBC. They said... Uh, this this company, was the, the
1: market talking. This wasn't obviously the board of directors who employed you.
0: <laughs> well... Uh, I would say I don't think the board was quite convinced either because uh, they read all the same stuff and you know you go through a couple of interviews and all of a sudden you're hired. So it was kind of an uncomfortable uh, place to be. So it's not like there was this natural, oh yeah, this is our guy you know, he's going to lead us to victory. I had to really be careful what I said, what I did, how, how I ran meetings, uh, uh, everything. I didn't want to do just a wholesale uh, takeout because I thought that is way too disruptive for an organization. And I wanted sustainability. Whatever I did, I wanted sustainability. And I didn't want it to be, okay, whatever was being done previously, those were all idiots where everything has to be different or by definition, it's stupid. I didn't want that. I thought you always got to build on what were the good things that were going on because there's always something. And then you got to change the other things. And if you just changed everybody out, then it would just be too much too fast. So I kind of did it over time based upon, okay, who were the ones that seemed to be getting things done and I could at least work with versus others that I I couldn't. Uh, Three people on my staff had interviewed for my job, which immediately creates this uh, very different dynamic that you have to deal with. So I didn't want to move too abruptly because I thought that much change wouldn't, just wouldn't work. And I spent a lot of time up front on that mindset and culture that we talk about. And I can remember I pulled my whole staff together because I wanted to create these 10 behaviors on how we were going to work as a team, as a company, what was going to be important to us. I got my whole staff together and we ended up with 12 rather than 10. And across the standard jokes about God needed only 10 commandments, but we need 12 to fix Honeywell. It's yeah. Okay. You know, (laughs) I get it.
1: Twelve, It's 12. No, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) I like the way you use the word behaviors and not values as well, because I often say a value is one thing but behavior is how you do it.
0: Yeah. So that's cool. I like that. Right. So we, I went to behaviors for exactly that reason actually. And I can remember one of my uh, staff members, one of the business guys saying, why are we spending so much of this time on behaviors when we have all these strategic issues we have to deal with? And I said, well, here's why. Uh, I said, I can make all the strategic decisions you want, but if nobody does them, getting back to that third point of leadership, then it doesn't matter. We need to have an organization that will execute these strategic decisions. And that needs to start with what are the behaviors that we want to see amongst ourselves." and our organization and interestingly that same guy uh we had a big conversation about teamwork and i'd said okay it's incumbent upon every person on team to participate incumbent upon the team leader to make sure everybody participates and that you get all the facts and opinions incumbent upon the team leader to make a decision and not hope for consensus but actually make a decision then it's incumbent upon every team a person, team lead, team member to support that decision after it's been explained to them by the team leader. So we make a decision in the meeting. I get about a month later and I find out this guy is not doing what we'd all agreed to. And I called him up and said, you remember that conversation we had about teamwork and behaviors? And how we said, okay, your job to participate, my job to make sure you do my job to make a decision and explain it. Your job then to support it. said, well, we did those first three, but you're not supporting it. And all the feedback I'm getting back is that you're saying you're not going to support the decision. So how is this consistent? And what do you think I ought to do? And he was totally embarrassed and said, yep, I get it. You're absolutely right. And I haven't behaved like I should. I'm going to fix it. And, okay, I thought that's a good example of what it is I was trying to accomplish.
1: Wow it's interesting i mean the book obviously touches on lots of different things but you know one of the i'm listening to everything you're saying here and you've got some fantastic points just on general
0: leadership you know which is great because i appreciate that because one of my uh one of the things i wanted to do with the book is i always said you know most business books would make great pamphlets there's 10 pages of useful concept and 250 pages of stories And you could be done with it. You could fly through business books just because, yep, same thing, same thing, same thing. And I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something that I said, okay, I want every page to be substantive where it, yeah, everything ties, of course it has to, because everything connects eventually. But that people could learn something from every single page to say, okay, yeah, there's a point here I ought to think about, or there's a point here that could help me, as opposed to just story after story saying the same thing.
1: Yeah, what's coming out. And we've touched on culture, we've touched on strategy, we've touched on communication, values, behaviours. There's a heap of different stuff in this conversation. As I said, I'm sort of, I'm <laughs> thinking through all the various points. One, one thing that jumped to mind as well was I think it was, I don't know if you're a um, New England Patriots fan, but wasn't uh, Tom Brady <laughs> like hey. a... Was oh it, yes, was I am. <laughs> oh, funny! I thought you might be. And wasn't, wasn't he like a seventh, um, seventh round pick, and then ended up being probably the greatest quarterback of all time? So there's a there's a parallel story here for you, David. <laughs> well,
0: he was. Yeah, you are correct. Number 199 in the draft. There you go. And uh, it's actually one of the things that uh, an example I used to use. I think my folks would say ad nauseum, given that they were sick of hearing about the Patriots. But I'd say, okay, so you take a uh, business that is tremendously focused on caliber, quality of the person, the athlete. I mean, they're constantly examining them from all different kinds of ways. It's all they do. Said so yet you look at the New England Patriots, and they have this all-time goat quarterback sitting on the bench. And they're not giving him a chance because somebody who's got more experience, who they know better, continues to play until he's injured. Then Brady finally gets his opportunity, comes in and does a tremendous job and the greatest of all time. I said, "Okay, so what chance do we have as a company when we look at this nowhere near as much as a professional sports team does? And we're trying to figure out who the key talents are what are the chances that we get driven more by stereotypes based upon the interactions we've had with a person, where they went to school or what their background was, and that we don't really look at what their potential is. I said it's difficult to figure out. So for that reason, I used to favor internal promotion over external promotion. And we used to hire like 75% external I flipped it around. So that it ended up being like 15% external because you still want to do that. But I said, we have a tendency to like the shiny new object that's outside of us because we don't know it as well. And we're seeing them at their best when it comes to an interview. When in reality, we may have Tom Brady here sitting with us on the bench and we just don't know it because we don't give them a chance. So I always aired on the side of uh, giving people on the bench a chance. And by God, we found a lot of Tom Brady's. We found a lot of people that you would go, Wow, I didn't know they were capable of that. And say, well, that's right, because we never gave them the chance in the first place. Now sometimes it doesn't work, but we found it worked pretty often.
1: It's kind of your story, David, too. I mean so, you know, <laughs> you will be you'll be too humble to say it, but you know, you won't you recognize a couple of times as like CEO of the year twenty thirteen, I believe. And yeah. About 10 minutes ago, you were saying that, you know, there are a lot of people saying that you were probably not the first choice to go and do the massive turnaround of Honeywell. So there you go. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, I know I wasn't the first choice. I actually saw an offer to somebody else who rejected it. So <laughs> there you go.
1: There you go. So I think it's an interesting, so I'm just was playing the parallels. Um, listen, I've got a couple more questions just to finish off. This has been sure. a great conversation. So thanks for sharing everything about the book. And also your, your perspectives on leadership have been very valuable. So I do appreciate that. What's the... Um, What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given in business? You can say who it's by, but what's one that stands out, the one thing that's really shaped probably your career?
0: Well, um, I'm going to go back to the um, first people who told it to me, and I would say this got, it got reinforced by others later on. <clears throat> but I've often been asked, who were your most influential leadership role models? And for people who have some idea of my background, their first expectation is going to be, oh, he's going to say Jack Welch, of course. I mean, uh, Jack was he worked for him for in his organization for 25 years. My answer is always the same. It was my mom and dad. And my mom and dad only had uh, eighth grade educations. And my dad had like six months. My mom had two days and then like another year of secretarial school. So you would not say well-educated in the classic sense, but uh, they both provided a really good leadership lesson, different phrases, but the same message. Uh, With my dad, he was always saying, be a leader, not a follower. And with my mom, she was always saying, think for yourself. And I gotta say, as a kid, it was irritating. I mean, you hear this all the time, and it's irritating. It's like, oh, what the hell does that mean? And uh, It's just irritating. Well, as I got older and started to uh, run businesses and, you know, be in large organizations, one of the things that struck me was that the ability to think independently was a a lot more rare than being smart. There were a lot of smart people who could explain to you exactly how the herd was thinking because they were part of the herd, but they could not think independently, think on their own, analyze the facts and just consider what's the right decision to make here. What's the right judgment? And when I became a CEO, there was a friend of mine, a consultant who, who I knew well, and he gave me a nice piece of advice that was very consistent with that. He said whenever you're confronted with making a decision, if you don't understand all the pieces of it, make them go through it again. Have enough belief in your own intelligence, your own capability, said differently, your own ability to think independently, to make the, not make the decision until you understand it all. And it was a reinforcement of what my mom and dad had always said, but I found that extraordinarily helpful it was kind of affirmation of what my mom and dad had said. And I think is still one of the independent thinking is still pretty darn rare. Even amongst CEOs, you see it leaders everywhere. They're always fad surfing uh, on top of whatever the latest hot new thing is. So they can talk about it to investors, putting some money into it, having a credible story, but did they really think it through to say, is this a smart use of my money? Is this one where, my talk should just exceed my action because this doesn't make a lot of sense, but I don't want to look like an idiot either. And there's not enough independent thinking that goes on amongst smart people.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree with that too. And I think I, I often say to people, I think it's a Navy SEAL phrase, slow down to speed up because sometimes slowing <laughs> down. I love, I love it though. I, I say it all the time because I'm, I'm the most, um, let's say, successful in terms of my decision-making when I firstly give myself time to think. But then when I slow down and just create a bit of space, as opposed to running from decision to decision, it's amazing, actually, if you, if you kind of have that sort of, I suppose, uh, running on the, um, what do you call it, the, the wheel, like, you know, the sort of the treadmill or whatever else, you, you, you don't have the capacity to stop and actually think, hold on, do I understand this? And am I making uh-huh. the best decision?
0: And I see well, that everywhere. You are going to love this then, because a phrase that I use in the book, and it's a Japanese phrase, and I had a boss who used to use it a lot, but it is go slow to go fast. Perfect. And too many people use go slow to go slow or go fast to screw it up completely. When the whole focus is, put the right thought up front into design or making a good decision or how you're going to implement it so that when the time comes to make it happen, what happens happens fast and happens I effectively, that. so i, I could I could not agree with you more.
1: okay, we're gonna have one last question for you, okay, We're well, just for right. a bit of fun. So if that was the the best advice, great answer by the way, I love that. What's the okay. worst piece of advice? <laughs> for a bit of fun <laughs> uh,
0: The worst piece of advice I got was not to leave finance because I had uh, been an hourly employee and um, in manufacturing, then i managed to get a job in finance and start to build myself up and you know i was considered good at finance and the more i looked at it i kept saying geez you know as a finance guy the general managers are kind of doing what i'm recommending so i don't know why i can't take that next step there was nobody who supported me to take that next step the finance organization within ge wanted me to stay in finance HR people uh, told me that it was impossible to go from finance into general management in another business. I shouldn't even think about it. And I was strongly discouraged from uh, becoming a general manager. Uh, My own family, wife at the time, didn't want me to do it and said it was going to be a mistake. Peers of mine who were actually my friends were telling me, look, this is a high risk thing. Uh, you shouldn't be doing this, you're really good at finance, stay there. And the thing that pushed me over the edge was I thought, first of all, I said, you know, I actually think I can do this despite all the advice I'm getting not to. And the second one was, uh, I said, I don't want to be 60 years old and look back and wonder if I could have. It matters too much to me to know whether I can do it or not. And I think I can, so I think it's worth a try. So I pushed and pushed and made myself obnoxious within the HR and finance community until they finally did give me a chance. And, well, it worked.
1: The rest is history. There's a lot of mindset and self-belief in that as well. Yeah, Yeah, there was. There's a a theme all the way through this. You could have put mindset on the cover, but you know what? If you put mindset on the cover of anything, no one buys it. It's one of the things I... (laughs) I say, I say, this business podcast, scale up your business, is is probably seventy percent mindset. Anyway, when you get into the um, into the various episodes, but mindset matters. People, mindset matters. It does. Well, listen, David, it's been awesome having you on scale up your business. Um, your perspectives of fans are fantastic. You probably, as I said, I do lots of um, great conversations with interesting people, so I'm always attuned to the various things you've said. You've probably <laughs> forgotten some of them, but there, there's some high <laughs> notes in this. There's some high notes. Um, <laughs> Just when is your book? So winning now, winning later. When's it going to be on the shelves or available on Amazon to use a more sort of digital term?
0: <laughs> uh, well, you can, you can pre-order now on Amazon. And uh, it'll be published June 30th. Great. Okay. So not very long. And where
1: can people reach you if they want to? I'm on LinkedIn. LinkedIn all right well that's great we'll put the you won't get inundated hopefully but um, sometimes people like to kind of say they like the episode and uh, and say thank you so we will make sure we put Well, that actually in I shows.
0: hope I am in, inundated
1: <laughs> <laughs> there you go now you've said it that's it well, listen, listen thank you for being generous with your time David it's been great having you on the show thank you very much
0: oh, you've been a fun interview so uh, thank you for taking the time to actually research some of this
1: no problem at all. thank you
0: see you man